So intelligence reporter Shane Harris, for several weeks, we have been talking about the prospect of Russia invading Ukraine and starting a war that would have huge implications for the rest of the world. What are world leaders trying to do right now to prevent that from happening? Well, there is not much they feel like they probably can do at this point. There is an an increasing level of confidence, I think, in Washington and London and in other European capitals that Putin is likely to order his troops into Ukraine. What they are trying to do, though, is through a kind of a flurry of meetings between senior officials and diplomats, try and see if there is some kind of off-ramp they can create for Russia. Germany and the United States, together with our allies and partners, are working closely together to pursue diplomatic resolutions of this situation. And diplomacy is the very best way forward for all sides, we both agree, including best for Russia, in our view. The feeling is that the diplomatic window is closing, and closing very quickly, because Vladimir Putin, with what he's doing with his troops, does not look like somebody who wants to negotiate. He looks like somebody who's about to start a war. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Monday, February 7th. Today, as Russian soldiers are edging closer to the Ukrainian border, global leaders are scrambling to find a diplomatic exit hatch. Please sit down. Thank you. Good afternoon. I'd like to start by thanking Chancellor Schultz for making his visit to Washington. On Monday, President Biden met with German Chancellor Olaf Scholz as part of ongoing diplomatic efforts to stop the crisis at the Ukrainian border. I have been very, very straightforward and blunt with President Putin, both on the phone and in person. We will impose the most severe sanctions that have ever been imposed, economic sanctions. And there will be a lot to pay for that down the road. It will affect others as well. It will affect us somewhat, it will affect Europeans, but it will have profound impact on his economy. The German chancellor told The Post in an exclusive interview on Sunday that if Ukraine were to be invaded, Germany would take decisive and united action against Russia. And in Moscow, Russian President Vladimir Putin has agreed to meet with French President Emmanuel Macron. Macron is trying to de-escalate Russia's military buildup. All of this urgency from these world leaders is a reflection of just how many Russian troops have been deployed and how close they've gotten to the border with Ukraine. Well, they are very close. I mean, they are within, you know, in some cases, I think probably less than 100 miles. The important thing is that it's also the numbers of them. So what we're seeing is Russia being close to completing preparations for a large-scale invasion. We've talked before, and you've had colleagues on the podcast, too, talking about this this troop buildup that could go as high as 175,000 forces. That is still happening. And what we're also seeing 
is Russia sending combat units to very close to near the border and also in Belarus, which neighbors Ukraine. So we're seeing this kind of surge of what they call tactical groups coming up. And they're kind of massing all around the eastern border of the country uh, and then looking to Belarus as a place where they could come in from the north. So, you know, basically they are putting in place all of the, the kind of ingredients, if you like, that they would need to do the invasion at a moment's notice. And, and that's what's got... Western officials so worried is that this is not abated. We haven't seen Putin pulling these forces back. He's pushing them closer and closer to the front, and he's adding more people. When is an invasion expected to happen? So there are a couple of timelines that people are watching very closely right now to try and figure out when the invasion could actually occur. I would say that probably around February 9th to 10th is when things are going to get very hot. Russia is going to start a military exercise with Belarus in the next couple of days. Some people worry that they could use that as the kind of pretext. I mean, when you've got lots of troops running around and tanks driving around and people firing things and it's just an exercise, doesn't take much to flip the switch and kind of make that real. There are a couple of other events that are happening right now as well. Obviously, the Olympics are happening in Beijing. There is some thinking that Putin would wait for the Olympics to finish as a way of not upstaging and defending Xi Jinping. Oh, interesting. There are different minds of that. Notably, Vladimir Putin was at the opening ceremony. Of course, U.S. officials did not go. There was a diplomatic boycott. And Putin and Xi issued a joint statement about what strong allies they are, how concerned they are about the United States and the way that it's menacing people and its hegemony needs to be challenged. Notably, that statement, however, did not mention Ukraine. And some analysts read that as kind of Beijing signaling not so subtly, you know, we're not going to sit here and back you. Like, you're making this difficult for us because if you invade Ukraine, what are we supposed to do? Say, yeah, go for it. He was right. So they're, they're kind of trying to walk that line. So, you know... In terms of your question, though, I would say the next week, watch very closely. But honestly, we're not going to really know until you see the troops and the forces moving in such a way that signals that they're about to invade. That probably will provide some warning. Hmm. And can you remind us briefly, like, why is Putin doing this? There's a long history, obviously, with Russia and Ukraine. And we've talked before about how you know, I think many in Russia, and Putin is in this category, see Ukraine as being properly part of Russia. Of course, it was formerly a Soviet republic. There's a lot of cultural connection. I think, though, that Putin has kind of a couple of things in mind. But what we know is that historically, and also from his previous invasion of Ukraine in 2014, he believes this is territory that possibly properly belongs to Russia. He thinks that there are people, that there's a groundswell of public support in Ukraine that would like to be part of Russia. Of course, now what he's saying is that he feels that the United States and its alliance with Ukraine is threatening Russia, trying to bring it into the fold of NATO nations and NATO member states. And then he would see Ukraine as basically being aligned with NATO and the West right there on his border and that being a threat. So he has a kind of self-defense interest that he's professing. And we also know that, you know, Putin wants to try and undermine Western security alliances. He wants to undermine NATO. He wants to undermine the leadership of the United States. And so I think all of these are factors. But I have to say, you know, in, from our reporting, what struck me is that the more he builds up these forces, I find myself thinking, what on earth is this guy thinking? Hmm. Because he must think that this is going to be some kind of a cakewalk. I mean... Hmm. 
there could be tens of thousands of casualties in Ukraine. Tens of thousands of his own troops could die. And what I'm hearing increasingly is that U.S. and Western intelligence believe that the people close to Putin who are advising him are not being honest with him about how hard this would be. So it's a bit of a long-winded way to get back to your question of, you know, why is he doing this? There's a part of me that says, like, good question, because this huh. seems insane. Well, and I feel like there's also the question of what exactly is his goal. I mean, you talked a little bit about his larger motivations, but in terms of, like, what will be achieved by invading, I mean, like, would the plan be to take over Ukraine and make it part of Russia? What would be the end game? I think he might have a couple of end games in mind. One I could see is sort of officially annexing portions of eastern Ukraine. I mean, he kind of unofficially occupies it now in the sense that there is this kind of quote-unquote separatist movement uh, in eastern Ukraine that's been fighting with the the central government of Ukraine. That's essentially a Russian proxy force. There are obviously there are Russian military advisors in eastern Ukraine assisting them. I think that's probably a given. So you could see that. You could see him trying to take more area in the south of the country, kind of creating a land bridge there. I don't know that he has a notion of completely occupying and holding the country, but increasingly people who I've talked to say that they think that he might want to topple the government in Kyiv, so the Zelensky government, and then replace it essentially with mm -hmm. a government that was more favorable to Moscow. So if Ukraine became a country that maybe was a bit more like Belarus, right, where it's got a government that's very closely aligned with the Kremlin, is friendly to Putin, and is kind of, you know, a proxy uh, or an ally, that might be a win for him. And he mm -hmm. might conceivably be able to do that without having to occupy the entire country by force, which would be something that, you know, I think would be very hard for him to do, actually. After the break, we talk with Shane about what Western leaders are willing to give up to prevent a Russian invasion. And we hear from our colleagues on the ground in Kyiv. We'll be right back. This podcast is sponsored by Monarch Money. Are you saving to reach your financial goals? Reaching those goals isn't just about getting more money, but by managing what you have. And the best way to manage your money? Monarch Money. Monarch Money is a new kind of finance app that's intuitive, powerful, ad-free, and takes the headaches out of budgeting. Try it free when you go to monarchmoney.com slash podcast. Monarch puts all your accounts, investments, transactions, and finances at your fingertips. With a complete view of your finances, you'll gain insights on your spending and find new ways to save. Plus, Monarch lets you customize your dashboard, collaborate with your partner, set custom budgets and goals, and track your progress toward them. See why Mint users are turning to Monarch Money and loving it, and why the Wall Street Journal named Monarch Money the best budgeting app overall. Get a 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash podcast. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H money.com slash podcast for your free trial monarchmoney.com slash podcast. So, Shane, you painted a pretty clear picture of what the escalation of this conflict could look like, where you could conceivably have tens of thousands of Russian and Ukrainian troops dying in a war. Obviously, that is a thing that so much of the international community is trying to avoid. So when you talk about this 
off-ramp that they're trying to get to, of a way of de-escalating this conflict? Like, what would that look like? What is it that diplomats are currently trying to to achieve? Like, where could this go in a way that doesn't end up in war? Well, there are a couple of things that are off the table, right? The U.S. is not going to say, because it really can't, okay, we will never accept Ukraine as a NATO member. So that's off the table. But there might be certain security guarantees about uh, military exercises, placement of military equipment. There might be some things that the U.S. could do and the West could do to placate Putin and say to him, essentially, look, we're trying to convey to you that we have no designs on undermining your security. We're not trying to become close to Ukraine so that we can invade Russia. The the problem with that is, though, I think, is that I'm not sure any of that would really satisfy Putin. Mm. You know, his demands have been pretty absolutist. You know, no membership in, in NATO for Ukraine. You know, halt military exercises between the U.S. and Ukraine. Essentially, hands off Ukraine, which would make them more vulnerable. And the United States like to say, well, that's up to Ukraine. It's not for us to dictate their future. The United States has put forward a proposal to the Russians, a written response to some of its ideas. As far as we know, the Russians have yet to respond in a detailed way directly to that proposal. And we don't know precisely what it says. But I would have to imagine is that it is... Something that Putin would say as, you know, maybe less than half a loaf. Let's put it that way. I don't Mm -hmm. think that the United States is going to be able to meet his most extreme demands. And they've already said that. But if there's a way to basically say, look, we can try and give you some assurances that, you know, Maybe we won't necessarily press for Ukraine to come into NATO or we'll talk about basing or we'll talk about military exercises, then sure, I think they'd be open to that. And they're looking for that window. It's just that Putin doesn't seem to be taking any of those proposals, whatever they may be, seriously because he keeps escalating the troop buildup. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like that's kind of the carrot approach, right, of try to give Putin something that he wants, which seems like it's maybe not going so well. But then there's also the stick approach, which is basically trying to threaten action if Putin does end up invading. I know that there are U.S. troops that are in Europe right now that are preparing for an invasion and to be able to respond. But what are the status of those troops and how confident can we feel that the U.S. and other Western countries are going to actually take action to defend Ukraine if this invasion does happen? Well, I don't think that the U.S. or any of the allies will take military action if Putin does decide to go into Ukraine. And I think that he knows that as well. The buildup of troops and U.S. troops in Europe, I think, is meant more as a signal to our allies that we're serious about our NATO commitments so that if Putin ever invaded a NATO member state, that we would be ready to go. And it's a way of saying to Russia, you know, we do have the capacity to send more people here. I think the response, though, from the West is going to be largely in the form of sanctions. And, you know, the Biden administration has done everything it can to be explicit publicly and privately with the Russian government to say, look, if you go in, we're prepared to sanction, you know, certain banks. We're prepared to maybe kick you out of the international financial system. We can do things that will make it very, very uncomfortable for you and very hard for you to operate. The counterpoint to that, of course, being that, well, that might actually just drive them closer into the arms of China, which might be more than happy to provide Russia with access to global markets and mm-hmm. financial networks and things like that. But there's not really a scenario that anybody is conceiving of here where the U.S. sends ground forces into Ukraine and the U.S. starts fighting Russia. I think that it's much more likely that what the U.S. would do through the intelligence community is try to support 
you know, sort of guerrilla forces in Ukraine that could kind of mount their own sort of counterinsurgency, if you want to think of it that way, and try and do things more covertly. But this this war, if it begins, does not then, at least in, in the way people are conceiving of it, lead to U.S. boots on the ground. And given that Putin knows that, it gives him the ability, frankly, to sit there and think, okay, well, could I tolerate these sanctions? Could mm-hmm. it be worth it? Can I get assurances from Xi Jinping in China? And if he ultimately calculates yes, and it's worth it, I think that he's likely to invade. We have heard a lot about the prospect of a potential false flag event that would start this invasion. This is something that the State Department has been warning about. Can you explain like what is a false flag event and what that would look like in this context? Why people are so worried that that could be the thing that starts this war? Yeah, a false flag is a, when one country launches an attack and tries to blame it on another. And, and, and they do it as a kind of a pretext for some kind of response. So what we know from intelligence that's been declassified and that we've reported on is that Russia was planning to make a video in which it would look like the Ukrainian military had attacked Russian forces or even had attacked inside Russia mm. and caused a lot of casualties and a lot of damage. There were going to be, well, we're told, corpses that were going to stand in for dead Russian soldiers, oh um, that they were going to hire actors to pretend that they were mourning uh, over this, that there was going to be images of destroyed Russian military equipment that would, of oh. course, be either fake or from some other period made to look like it had just happened. And the fear here among U.S. and allied services was that Russia would then take this video, air it back home in Russia, mm-hmm. build popular support, say, look what the Ukrainians did to us, and then use that as a pretext for invading Ukraine. And the Americans decided to disclose that intelligence as a way of basically, you know, ripping off the mask and saying, if Russia does this, don't believe it. Yeah. And as a way of kind of saying to Putin, like, well, now we've spoiled your plot. You can't try that trick. I think, you know, what you're what you're pointing to here is, is, is something that's really important to remember is Russia can just find some other pretext for mm. doing this. And, and Putin is not likely to be deterred. He'll find a reason to do it. And what you see, though, the United States trying to do is call him out as much as possible as a way of waving him off, but also building international resolve that if Putin does go in, it will be just a kind of, you know, a, a blatant invasion of another country. It won't be for any kind of pretext that has anything to do with his own security or Russia's security. Hmm. How are people in Russia feeling about the prospect of going to war? That's a good question. I don't know what the latest polling is on that. And frankly, it would be hard to have a lot of confidence in it. I think, though, the general consensus is that Russians are not likely to tolerate a prolonged war that ends with many, many Russian troops dying. It's not a country, I think, right now that is prime for this idea of a long war and an occupation, which is why Putin has tried to hype the idea that Ukraine is actually a threat to Russia to get people more on sides mm-hmm. for a long, protracted invasion. In other generations, Russians have been this through this before. I mean, famously, the war in Afghanistan, right? They know what it's like to see their soldiers kind of shipped off 
uh, uh, and consigned to a brutal war, that doesn't necessarily mean that they have the capacity though, to stop Putin from doing it. Very hard to imagine there could be a popular uprising, for instance, in Russia that would end with Putin being toppled because he launched a war in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And then what is your sense of how average Ukrainians feel about being invaded and that their lives could be turned upside down any minute? Yeah, this is such an interesting question to me because, you know, when you talk to 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 people who are in touch with folks on the ground in Ukraine, particularly in some of the big cities, you know, there's this sense that, yes, the troops are out there, but they're kind of far away. And some people I've talked to become very frustrated in particular with the government uh, of President Zelensky, who they think is not doing enough to really prepare his citizens for the likelihood of an invasion. I, I was talking to a source a senior Ukrainian government official who said, you know, if you walk through Kyiv right now, the restaurants are full, the cafes are full. I mean, people are aware that this threat is out there, but they're not panicking. You know, we've been hearing the same thing from two of our colleagues who are on the ground in Kyiv right now, Isabel Kershudian and Steve Hendricks. And they've told us about how there is this atmosphere that is relatively unpanicked. In most ways, honestly, Kyiv doesn't feel like a city braced for war. The sidewalks are busy, stores are open. It's not that they're blasé to the possibility of danger and really bad times ahead, but they don't, it's like they don't think they can control events, so they're ready to deal with them as they come. I think most people here remain kind of skeptical that Russia is going to invade. Some people, you know, think that this is a kind of a way for Russia to hurt Ukraine economically by creating this kind of panic situation here. I do think that's why, you know, people are kind of willing to listen to Ukrainian government officials who here say, you know, don't panic. We don't see a threat. We don't see Russia as being prepared to invade right now. Now, the city has done some things. They've begun having evacuation drills in in the schools. They've sort of dusted off the old maps of the 500 or so bunkers. But it turns out that a lot of those spaces have, you know, they've been repurposed over the years and they're, they are now cafes and, and theaters and comedy clubs and a lot of storage rooms. We went to one block where the, the bunker is now a strip club. And it's not that these places can't be used in an emergency, but there's just a lot of uncertainty about how it's all going to work and not a lot of information from the government. People have started to pack go bags, but for the most part, I think a lot of people also say that they've been living with Russian aggression for eight years and that's been, that's ongoing. That's still going on today. And so, but I will say like, even just me being here right now, I'm starting to feel nervous. Uh, And like I hear a lot of Ukrainians say that they don't want to watch the news anymore or, you know, every American intel report, you know, freaks them out. Um, So they've just kind of tried to tune it out or like go out to bars or dancing or clubbing or whatever um, to kind of get away from it. So, Shane, even if these people that our colleagues in Kyiv have talked to are basically living life as normal right now, it does seem like that might be a reflection of the approach from President Zelensky's government and this intentional decision to prevent alarm. They do not want a public panic. They are really concerned about a run on banks. They are concerned about capital flight from the country. 
they are increasingly frustrated with the Biden administration and with the Boris Johnson administration, who they feel are starting to scare people about an invasion by Russia and that that is causing its own kind of panic. You know, the Americans and the Brits would counter that by saying, well, uh, maybe the 100,000 plus troops on your border are the thing that are actually panicking your citizens and not our statements. It has been remarkable to me the degree to which outwardly and frankly, privately, the Zelensky government seems to not take as seriously the threat of this invasion as the British and the Americans do. It's like they're reading from two separate sheets of music here. And it's hard to know whether or not President Zelensky and his aides are truly just trying to project an air of calm while they know that something is about to happen. And so they're sort of kind of whistling past the graveyard here, um, which would be understandable in in terms of trying to keep their, their population from panicking, or whether they are delusional and simply have just discounted the what it looks like increasing, I won't say certainty, but strong likelihood of a Russian invasion. We'll find out. I mean, if, if, if in the end, Vladimir Putin backs down and, and, and walks away, it may be that, you know, we say, wow, President Zelensky and his aides clearly knew the mind of Vladimir Putin better than the West did. I think a lot of people doubt that. But, you know, this is kind of the, the, the disconnect that Washington and London are seeing right now with Kyiv. And it's, it's very frustrating. Uh, and for people on the ground, I think they are just watching and very anxiously waiting, just like the rest of us are, to see what happens. Shane Harris is an intelligence reporter for The Post. This story was produced by Renny Svernovsky. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was mixed by Sean Carter and edited by Alexis Diao. A big thank you to listeners who have spread the word about the show by posting a review on their podcast app. That includes Cindy in the UK, who gave us a five-star rating and, as an extra bonus, said that, quote, I find listening as a paying subscriber easier on my conscience. Thank you so much, Cindy, for your support. And for everyone else, we always appreciate it when you write us a review or rate us in your podcast app. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.